Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Habakkuk. As we are set to complete our uh, series in the book of Habakkuk, I know that feels a little strange to start a series and then to end it so quickly, Uh, but Habakkuk is only three chapters, so we took about four weeks to work our way through it. It's a little bit difficult to find in your Bibles. It's only three chapters tucked away in the Minor Prophets, so feel free to use your table of contents to find it. Habakkuk chapter 3. We were introduced to Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1, where he identifies his ministry as a burden, a burden before the Lord. And he cries out to God, questioning God, because Habakkuk doesn't quite understand why God is not doing something in his day that he thinks God should be doing. Habakkuk is living in a time in Judah where he's been assigned to be this prophet, the spokesman for God's word, but he's living in a time in Judah where the people he is speaking to have no regard for God's word. No regard for God. In fact, he looks out across the, the place where he lives, and he, he does not see people of God reflecting the glory of God. What he sees are the people who are supposed to reflect the glory of God oppressing one another, abusing one another, taking advantage of one another. He sees violence and destruction and murder. He sees idolatry. He sees the one true God being forsaken by the very people who were supposed to glorify God. And And as he looks out at them and he thinks to chapters like Deuteronomy chapter 27 where God says, if my people turn away from me toward things like idolatry, I will bring justice to them. I will bring judgment to them. He looks out and he's like, God, you're not doing that. And in frustration, he sort of cries out to the Lord because it appears as if evil is prevailing in the land. And like God is off somewhere else not listening to his prayers, not acting, like God's having a golf game somewhere else. I mean, and, and this whole land is going nuts, and, and God's just busy or unconcerned. And so he, he cries out to God because he feels like he, God's not listening. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, the, the whole conversation changes when it goes from a monologue to a dialogue. And God answers And God answers in chapter 1, verse 5, and he corrects Habakkuk on some things. Habakkuk is saying, he's accusing God of not working, of not doing anything. In verse 5, God speaks and he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And God begins to articulate to Habakkuk what it is that he is doing. He is raising up the Chaldeans, or another name for that nation, the Babylonians, one of the most wicked nations in the world at the time who was, who was devastating the ancient world. And God says, I'm actually raising them up to bring the judgment and the justice on the land of Judah that you're asking for. Habakkuk chapter uh, 1, verse 12, uh, Habakkuk responds to this 
uh, and he's a little thrown off guard because God's plan sounds worse than what <laughs> the original situation was. God, you're going to use an evil nation. I mean, this nation is known for capturing its enemies and putting hooks through their lips and, and leading them like fish into exile or putting them in nets and dragging them behind their chariots. I mean, they're known for atrocities. And God, you're telling me that you're going to use an evil nation to do your bidding. That's worse than not doing anything at all. And so Habakkuk is confronted with the same question that all of us either have been confronted with or are being confronted with today. And the question is, how could a good, all-powerful God sit idly by while the wicked nation of Babylon unleashes atrocities on the nations of the world? He's asking, how could a good God allow evil to seemingly prevail in this world? God answers Habakkuk again as he raises his second complaint and declares that he's just going to stand and watch and wait for God to make sense out of all this. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, God answers Habakkuk with a promise. He answers the problem of evil in the world with a promise. So Habakkuk 2 4, God says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. One day, God will save those who have faith and finally judge those who are puffed up. In the entire chapter uh, following of chapter 2, God articulates the types of judgments that are going to fall fully and finally on the puffed up person, the one who rebels against God rather than who submits to God in faith. And last week we, we saw these sort of uh, beautiful but terrifying verses where it says that, that the Lord would be, f the, the earth would be full of the glory of the Lord, that the knowledge of him would spread like the sea covers, or the water covers the sea, and that ultimately at the last day God would be standing in his holy temple and the whole earth would be silent before him. So Habakkuk's perspective has been challenged. Uh, he's gone from God, what in, you know, you're not doing anything, to God sort of adjusting his view of God and saying, no, 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 look at me for a second and what I am doing and what I intend to do. And now in chapter 3, Habakkuk begins to declare what he's learned about God, what he's, what he's resolved to do going forward because of what he's learned about God. Chapter 3 is, is a prayer. Uh, but it's also structured like a song. So, so this is very much a prayer of Habakkuk, but it was used as a song of praise in the Israelite community for years to come. That's why as we read here in just a moment, you'll see those little uh, cues, uh, Selah, S-E-L-A-H. Uh, it's a musical pause because this was meant to be sung. This was meant to be reflected upon over and over and over again over the course of the life of the Israelites. And what Habakkuk is doing in this song, or in this prayer song, he's actually reminding himself of what he's learned about God, how God has been faithful in the past, and how that past faithfulness is going to be his hope for God's future faithfulness. So, so what he's doing is he's reflecting on moments in history, like the Exodus, where God delivered his people out of slavery from Egypt. 
He's reflecting on moments like the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan River, the falling of the walls of Jericho, the, the, the many battles that the people of God faced against enemies that seemed insurmountable, but yet those enemies were destroyed under the mighty power of God. And he's reflecting on all these things. So as I read, I want you just to notice these themes of God's power that remind you of stories of the Old Testament that have already happened. And Habakkuk is is very much meditating upon what God has done so that he might have joy over what he knows God will do in the end. So I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, and uh, we're going to read all the way through verse 19, and then we're going to pause, pray for God to give us understanding. Verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to uh, Shigianoth, uh, it's a type of song, basically. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One, from the Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and and shook nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the, the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. 
Let's pray. Father, help us to learn this morning again what Habakkuk learned. Father, we pray that you would adjust our perspective as you adjust Habakkuk's perspective and that we might find the joy that Habakkuk found, the solid ground that Habakkuk found. Father, I pray for the people in this room that are discouraged, overwhelmed, and joyless. Would they find a spring of joy eternally deep? Father, we pray. Uh, bring us into right understanding of you. Stir us to worship. Comfort us by your spirit. Um, enlighten our minds with truth. In this moment, through your words, by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The Habakkuk of chapter 3 is not the Habakkuk of chapter 1. God has adjusted his perspective. He's, he's really rocked his world. Habakkuk has now found solid ground on which he can stand. And in this prayer, he, he begins the prayer with a prayer of petition that he now knows will be answered one day. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2. O Lord, I have, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear... In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk now knows what the Lord is going to do because the Lord himself has come down and, and told him. So he says, oh, I've, I've heard the report. I know what you're going to do. He knows what God has done in the past. He knows what God is capable of. And admittedly, Habakkuk says, it scares me. <laughs> I, I'm I'm fearful. For what is to come, but I, most of all, I, I fear God in a different way than when I started this book. Not in a sinful way, but a sacred way. The Lord has just spoken very clearly, chapter 2, verse 20, that, that he is in his holy temple and that all the earth keeps silence before him. God has declared very clearly that final victory is coming and Habakkuk trembles at the magnitude of God, he knows judgment is coming over Judah that he cannot even comprehend, but that somehow, some way, God will preserve his people. And so at this point, Habakkuk has no more complaints, no more questions, only prayer. And this is what he asked in verse 2. In, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk prays in the midst of the judgment and the suffering of the land that he's about to face, about to undergo. Uh, he, he, he prays, God, would you remember mercy? He, he's praying for God to preserve his people even in the midst of the hardship that is about to come on them. He's praying that when the dust clears... That Habakkuk 2.4 will prove true. The righteous shall live by faith. Wrath is coming. He knows. I've heard you, God. Wrath is coming. And now he prays, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, that's a, that's a profound phrase. 
when it comes to the very nature and character of God, right? He is both a wrathful God, holy and just, mighty and frightening, but he is also a merciful God with his children. Now, these two attributes of God come together for our salvation most fully at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Where Jesus endures the full wrath of God for our sin and at the very same moment is extending mercy to us for our salvation. If you want to see a God of wrath and mercy all wrapped up in one moment, look to the cross of Christ because you see the fullness of God there. So Habakkuk prays to this God that he might remember mercy in this moment of wrath and he transitions from a prayer of petition to a prayer of exaltation and expectation because he knows that this prayer is going to be answered because this is what God has said he will do. So verses 3 through 16 now are this powerful vision of God that Habakkuk is experiencing as he's remembering the faithfulness of God in the past and looking forward to the future. And As we track through verses 3 through 16, there's really three themes of this prayer that rise to the surface. So uh, the first theme out of three this morning is truth number one. Habakkuk recognizes that God has absolute power over all things. This is something that Habakkuk has learned more fully in his conversation with God. Remember at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk's questioning God. He's accusing God of not hearing, not saving, idly sitting by while evil's prevailing. And now Habakkuk catches a vision of God and he writes it down. And the vision he catches of God is not one of God who's like missing something or unable to hear or unable to do something. The vision he catches is much bigger than he originally assumed. God is coming, Habakkuk says. He poetically portrays God sort of like breaking into the world as a, as a visible acting force. A God who is not silent, a God who is not invisible, a God who is in fact blinding. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 3. God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. This, this poetic description of sort of light breaking into darkness is he's picking up on language from throughout the entire Old Testament beginning all the way back with Genesis 1-1 where there was darkness and then this God, this creator God says, let there be light and there's light just burst into being. He speaks and stars explode into existence, right? And then and this, from the word of his mouth, this verse comes true. His splendor covers the heavens. At the word of his mouth, birds, fish, animals, creeping things, they just, they fill the earth all, with all of their unique beauties, all of their, I mean, we went to the aquarium just the other day, and I mean, there's some crazy looking stuff in the ocean, but, but all of it just, just beautiful colors and crazy looking glowing jellyfish and sharks and all the things, and God just said, just spoke, and there was just filling the earth, these testimonies of the magnitude and the majesty and the creativity of the only one who creates things out of nothing, right? The earth is filled with his praise. 
Not only do we see shadows from creation, though, we see shadows from where God reveals himself to his people. When, when creator God made himself known to the Israelites and to Moses, he did so through a flame of unapproachable fire descending upon a mountain, right? The ground is shaking, lightning and thunder. The messages don't even touch the mountain or you will die because of the holiness that is here. When Moses gets an invitation extended to him to come up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he comes back down. They have to veil his face from shining, from just being in the presence of the Lord. When Moses requests of God, please show me your glory, God says, I'll hide you in the cliff of the rock. I'll pass by. You can glance at my back. But only for a moment. Do do you hear the language of the text? That his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands. And there he veiled his power. Do you hear the tension in the text? This is crazy beautiful. But even this, God is veiling his power. For the protection of his people. (laughs) His manifestations are not full. Because you as a creature cannot handle it. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the glory. Of the one true God who's existed from eternity past. So he, he even veils the fullness of power for the good of his creatures. Then Habakkuk transitions from these sort of manifestations of just light and glory and, and just things sort of beyond our comprehension to, to more tangible things that God has actually done in history. He transitions to start recounting the Exodus story. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 5, Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Right? Book of Exodus, we learn that Egypt was the most powerful uh, nation in the land at the time, and, and God conquers Egypt by systematically sending ten plagues that correspond with the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Through river turning to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, disease, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and death, God showed absolute power over all things. So much so that gnats fly. Mosquitoes fly, flies fly to do the bidding of God. Frogs hop in the direction that God tells them to hop. <laughs> Habakkuk 3.6 continues not to just articulate God's power over these plagues, but, but over the entire created order. Verse 6, he, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and, and shook the nations. It's like a like a, um, you got like a dusty rug, like that one back there. You take and you just beat out when you just need to get it, get it clean. God shakes the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Uh, his were the everlasting way. Uh, skip down to verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The, the point here is that, that obstacles for man to journey through, things that are really big, hard for us to get over, get through, or get around, God is sovereign over. He, he shakes whole nations, scatters mountains, sinks hills, parts rivers, controls seas. Things that are obstacles to us are tools in the hand of the Almighty to do as He pleases. 
Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Habakkuk is, is uh, even recounting or reflecting upon, there's a story in Joshua where God's people are at war and Joshua needs some more daylight to, to win the battle. And God just causes the sun to stand still so that the victory might be won. Now, God didn't have to do it that way, right? He could have just snapped his fingers and then all the enemy army could have fallen dead. But just to show his power, he he just lengthens the day for them. Whether it be the earth's orbit around the sun or the flight path of a mosquito, no force of nature acts on its own outside of the absolute power of God. And Habakkuk has learned this in his conversation with the Almighty. That no force of nature and no human force prevails its will over the God of the universe. Verse 12, he says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God threshes over whole nations. To thresh means to like, like, a, like an ox treading out the grain. I mean, he, it's trampling over pieces of grain. Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Israel, Iraq, Iran, North Korea. These nations do not threaten the power of God. They are like pieces of grain on the ground over which God can trample as he pleases. God has absolute power over all things. And Habakkuk has learned this from the mouth of the Lord himself. But that's not all that Habakkuk has learned because that's, if that's all we know of God, then that's not necessarily good news. <laughs> it's not necessarily comforting. And if that's all Habakkuk got was that God says, get over it, I'm using the Babylonians. What comfort or joy is that to, to us? He, he learns that not only does God have absolute power, but God's absolute power has a purpose. That, that it's moving toward something. Truth number two, God has a plan to preserve his people. Look at, look at verse 13 with me. Habakkuk says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk reflects on God's remarkable acts throughout Israel's history. He he reflects on what God's been doing in all of this. He's not just like willy-nilly exercising power for the fun of it, like just sort of this crazy tyrant. There's a plan. There's an end toward which God is marching history. And that end involves the salvation of his people who have rebelled against him. The salvation of his anointed ones. The, the crushing of the head of the house of the wicked on behalf of his people. Now, now that, that language should trigger some things in your mind when you think of God crushing the head of the wicked, right? Genesis, God creates humanity perfect. They fall by temptation. 
giving in to the lie of the evil one, Satan himself, the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of all the curses that follow the sin of the world, God turns to the serpent and he declares something. He declares that I will put enmity between you and the woman, Genesis 3.15, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, being the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. In other words, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise that the evil one will be stomped out one day. Though it may inflict a little damage to the heel, it will be stomped out one day. And here Habakkuk describes God as the one who crushes the head of the evil one. From the beginning, God's absolute power has not been purposeless. He's carrying us along to the end of the story where the righteous shall live by faith and the evil one will be crushed under the feet of an offspring of Eve, a new Adam, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's an end toward which the story is moving, and one day God's defeat over Egypt, Jericho, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, it will all look like child's play by way of comparison to the total conquering of evil, Satan, and death itself that is coming. Habakkuk is recognizing two realities here. He's recognizing that God has said that these curses are coming upon Judah through the Babylonians. He's recognizing it's coming. This is going to be bad. God's bringing judgment through the land. But he's recognizing also that one day God will serve justice on all his enemies, including the Babylonians, and he will preserve his people. Look at verse, look at verse 16. As he's just considering all these eternal big realities, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You hear both realities. Number one, he trembles because he knows what God's going to do in Judah. But he waits for the day where God settles the score. Where justice is served and victory is won. This, this, is, this is big for our understanding of the Bible. Babylon becomes the symbolic kingdom of man in the story of the Bible. Um, this, this evil kingdom that seems to be doing as they please, exercising power at will, wreaking havoc on humanity, this kingdom will fall. And and it becomes this picture, uh, not just in the Old Testament, but all the way to Revelation chapter 18, as John is catching a vision of the future, of what will happen at the end of time. The, The kingdom of a man is called the kingdom of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. The whole chapter is given to talk about the fall of Babylon. You can, you can hear just some examples. Revelation chapter 18, verse 9. The, the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in the fear of torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. You hear the emphasis. This, this kingdom that rules the whole world, this kingdom of man, in, in an hour, it, it, what seems to go as far as the eye can see, will in a moment be destroyed by the righteous God who brings this final victory over evil. 
Verse 21 of chapter 18, the mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. But then there's Revelation 19, the righteous who will live by faith on the last day. Revelation 19.6, I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, our Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the end we look forward to. In all of our suffering, all our sickness, all our pain, all our death, all our enemies, all our opposition, all our struggles, all our relational strife, one day will be crushed under the head of the conqueror. One day Jesus has victory over all the Babylons of the world and all that remains are the righteous that live by faith who are invited to feast forever with Jesus Christ. God has absolute power over things, all things, but God has a plan to preserve his people. Habakkuk has learned this lesson from the very words of God. But what does this mean for Habakkuk now, right? Because, yes, these things are true. Wow, God's in control. Wow, the end is victory. But Habakkuk still lives in Judah, (laughs) And the Babylonians are still en route. The great day of suffering and difficulty is still heading his way. I mean, Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17, uh, Habakkuk begins to think about what it's going to be like if siege comes to his land. And we, we read verse 17 and we don't feel the weight of verse 17 because we don't, we don't live in an agricultural society where we really grasp the depths of the pain and suffering that follow these sentences. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. No fig tree blossoming, no fruit on the vines, no produce of the olive, no food from the fields, no flock, no herds. The description of verse 17 is not just sort of poetic happenstance. The description of verse 17 is a description of corporate wide-scale starvation. I mean, Habakkuk is looking forward to, if this happens, if God does this in this place, he's looking at the description of a community dying slowly. It's a description of a type of suffering most of us cannot fathom. Right? I mean, we, we talk about getting hungry. Uh, we talk about getting hangry because we miss lunch, right? I mean, but he's, he's describing a scenario where in the entire city, you can't find food. You can't order it. You can't go out and pick it. You can't go out and buy it. There is no food to be found. You've got to leave your home at the risk of getting, uh, getting rocked by the enemies who wait outside the gate or stay and starve. 
And Habakkuk is describing this as a possible scenario in which he might find himself. Right? And then verse 18, he articulates his response. This is what he says. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Truth number three. God's people find joy in pain because they know God's plan. (laughs) They know the end of the story. Habakkuk recognizes that, that nothing about verse 17 changes anything about verse 18. Nothing about verse 17 that he describes changes anything about verse 18. Even if starvation is his end, he knows it's not the end. The Lord, Yahweh, is the the name he, he ascribes here. That is the eternal one, the I am, the great I am, is his salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The day of trouble for all the evil in the world will come. Habakkuk found in God, a joy that cannot be taken away by any outside circumstance. Habakkuk found in God what Christians have been promised in Christ. Christ suffered for the joy that was set before him. He died and rose again so that we might live eternally and rejoice continually. Christians, the the remarkable thing about Christianity and about Christian people are not that we always experience blessing and healing in this life. The remarkable thing about Christianity is that when we do face the sufferings of this world, we face it differently than the rest of the world. The remarkable thing about Christianity is not promise of always being healed of your sickness. It is not the promise of always being financially blessed. The, the, the amazing thing about Christianity, which drew people to Christianity in the first three centuries of its history, was that these people, even when faced with the, with the most terrific suffering, had an unshakable joy about them, as if they were living for a better world. And as if God were doing miracles in their very hearts, in the midst of the evil. We look at the writings of the New Testament, what we find are a people who face the evil of this world differently, right? I mean, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writing to a people suffering at the hand of persecution, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, I'm not saying that there's no grief. Christians should absolutely grieve. Goodness gracious, death and sin and wickedness are not things that please the Lord and should not please us. We should cry at funerals. We look forward to a day where where we don't have any more, right? 
If you've been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is where we're at now. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're a people who look forward to a reality in the future of eternal joy, and it brings joy into our present moment right first peter chapter 4 verse 12 don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as a test to you as though something strange were happening to you rejoice in so far as you share in christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when when his glory is revealed present joy because of our faith in future glory this is why paul was such a mess to handle by the romans we're going to kill you well praise god i'm going to be with christ well we're not going to kill you well praise god i'm going to proclaim jesus what do you do with that right you can't stop it this is why in our, in our Hebrew study uh, a little over a year ago, we, we saw this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 where, where the author is encouraging the people through the persecution they're facing. But listen to what he says in Hebrews 10, 32. Recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is what Habakkuk learned. That though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now perhaps you're here this morning, um, and you're not feeling all that joy, right? I mean, maybe you're here this morning, and and, uh, and you're saying in your mind, well, I believe all that, but I'm still joyless, you know? I mean, isn't joy like a feeling? Like, like I'm not, I, I, I believe it, but I'm, I'm not happy. I, I don't feel it. It's impossible for me just to make myself, like, more joyful in the, in the midst of all this. You're, you're putting before me something that seems impossible for me to achieve. To which I would answer, yes, I am. Would you look to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, and, and how Habakkuk recognizes that the joy, joy he's now experiencing is not because he like found some sort of secret trick to make himself happier. Verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Listen to what, what one commentator says about this verse he says um, should be on the screen Habakkuk now proceeds naturally to the conclusion where he shares the secret of his position God the Lord is my strength the prophet is ready to let anyone know the reason for his hopefulness in a bleak situation It, it is not due to any innate inherited or inwardly developed strength of his own there's no technique to master no guru to consult no formula to adopt God the Lord is my strength no more no less he is clear that it is Yahweh the covenant making covenant keeping God of Israel who is personally the one who provides all the strength he needs so so this may be oversimplified this morning but but we find 
find joy when we plead with God to help us find joy in God. <laughs> we, we ask of God to give us what we cannot create in ourselves. In my own, in my own life, I recognize when I am ministering, when I am pastoring out of the flesh rather than out of the joy that, that God provides. I feel it. I know it. And every time it happens, as it happened this week, I can trace it back to busyness allowing me to think that it's justifiable for me to operate out of my own strength and power. I can always trace it back to, to, to me not taking the time to get alone with the God of the universe and to pray the things that I've been praying for for 10 years. In the back of my little journal, I got a list of stuff I can't do in myself. I can't make myself love God more. I can't make myself love his word more. I can't make myself be wise during the day. Like, like I can't force myself to do these things. And one of the things that I, that I pray for when I'm being disciplined and when I'm doing what I, I need to be doing regularly is I pray that God would give me joy that day. Like no matter what comes, God, help me to find joy in you. And when I get into a season where, where, where when the fields uh, are, are dry, when there's no flock in the stall, you know, and, 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 I'm, and I'm like all bummed about it and, and being all of a sudden like joy is just stolen from me, I can trace it back because I'm trying to find joy myself in my things and the things around me and I'm not relying upon the only being in the universe who is the source of joy even when the even when the the herds are in the in the fields it's not enough to make you joyful (laughs) it's been a hard year right and I'm not even talking about 2020 I'm talking about 2021 it's been a hard year. In January, we lost a precious church member to COVID. I mean, I have felt Billy Booth's loss in so many ways in this church. I mean, even in dealing with the, the building project and permits. I mean, he was the guy that went and handled those things for us. Last night, or yesterday rather, we lost another church member to cancer. One whose smile was infectious. When she was here. Yet these things remain true. Right? I mean this is how. We as Christians face. Loss. We believe. God has absolute power over all things. That God has a plan. To preserve his people. That he has now. Successfully preserved Melissa. He has successfully brought her into the place where all her enemies are conquered, including cancer. And that God's people, that's us, left here, we find joy in the pain because we know the plan. I want to conclude this evening, or this morning, uh, by challenging you to do what Habakkuk did. I'm just going to give you four responses I want you to embrace uh, from this text and that we're going to do together. The first thing is just, it's just a, a, a retelling of truth one, but response number one is to consider God's absolute power of all things. Consider that he is never surprised. He is never challenged.
Number two, consider how God has been faithful in the past. I mean, God has shown through His Word, through the coming of Christ, through the coming of the Spirit, through the salvation of your soul, through the having in you, you in this place this morning, right now, He has proved His faithfulness to you over and over again. Response number three, consider what He's promised you in the future. That promise does not change regardless of how your week's gone, your day, or your year. This is exactly what Habakkuk's doing. He's looking back at the Exodus story, and he's saying, God, you've done this in the past. And he's looking forward to the future of what God has promised. He's saying, it's going to be big. (laughs) The future is going to be better. And then response number four Um, pray for joy in the present, right? We pray that our hope of future glory breaks into the present and gives us joy even though we're still waiting for the future glory. That's how we make it as Christians. Pray for joy in the present. And if you're here this morning and uh, you have never had the joy of the Lord, I just want to encourage you to the same thing. Uh, pray for the joy of the Lord this morning and ask that God would be your salvation uh, through faith in Jesus. Uh, maybe for the first time this morning, that's what you need to do in our time of response. And if that's the case, I encourage you to talk with one of us after the service uh, so we can help you process uh, what walking with God looks like. So let's, uh, let's pray and uh, let's respond. Father, we thank you for this short book uh, of Habakkuk, uh, just an obscure Old Testament text from thousands of years ago that you gave us for our perseverance in the midst of hardship. And God, I just pray for our church that we would be a people who respond to the suffering and the evil and the warfare of the world uh, differently than the rest of the world. May, may the outside outsiders look at us and be amazed at the miracle of the gospel in our lives, especially in the hard weeks and the hard days. We love you. And we pray that you would just help us to respond uh, appropriately through song with these four considerations. In Jesus' name, amen.